0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters, Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy hospital ship that responded to a spike in COVID cases in California last year can't go back to support the current growth in cases there. The Navy says the USNS Mercy is docked in Portland, Oregon, for overhaul. USNI News reports the Navy says the repairs and maintenance won't be finished until spring. A military hospital in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, will be part of a new test of a coronavirus vaccine. Womack Army Medical Center will host Phase 3 clinical trial research for a vaccine the company Novavax makes. Military.com reports five other installations are recruiting volunteers for the AstraZeneca shot. The Defense Department's latest financial mandate from Congress is an accounting for the accounting. The new National Defense Authorization Act requires the department to report on exactly how much it's spending to execute its annual audit. Federal News Network reports Congress will also require reports on what the department spends to fix the problems the audit finds. The draft of the new Polaris contract is on the street from the General Services Administration. The role of GSA in federal procurement could change under the next administration. Angela Stiles is partner at Aiken Gump. She's a member of the Public Buildings Reform Board and former administrator of federal procurement policy. Angela, welcome. It's good to see you again. This, this collaboration between GSA and the Defense Department has been much more pronounced over the last three or four years. What do you think needs to happen to keep that going to keep that relationship tight and functioning highly? You
1: gotta have good political leadership that really understands how important it is for DOD and GSA to work together on uh, procurement policy issues.
0: What, how does that manifest itself? What what are the kind of the building blocks that both the, a, a new GSA administrator and leadership at the Pentagon will undertake?
1: Well, I. In uh, this administration is a strong GSA leader uh, that you know had a strong background as a government contracts lawyer and understood many of the things that needed to happen in federal procurement. And then you had leaders over at the Department of Defense that, you know, understood the importance of procurement. Because historically, the Department of Defense has really driven procurement policy. I mean, you've had the Office of Federal Procurement Policy in there at times driving it, but GSA has played a secondary role. But now with GSA really um, having such strong leadership and such good relationships uh, with the Department of Defense and with OMB and the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, um, it really has been an excellent change for federal procurement, both in terms of transparency, contract vehicles, um, openness and leadership,
0: what does that uh, what does your former job at OFPP uh, look like in that mix in that in that collaboration structure among all of these organizations?
1: Well, unfortunately, this administration has not been very focused on OFPP um, and it hasn't had particularly strong political leadership. There's excellent leadership in um, the career civil servants that are there, but they can only manage. They can't really lead in the same way that a political appointee that's well connected at OMB and well connected at the White House and well connected at the Department of Defense or the Department of Homeland Security um, can really move policies forward. So. Um, you know, what you look for is, does this new administration focus early on OFPP and GSA? Traditionally, uh, they're appointed around the same time. They usually have confirmation hearings around June. Um, So if you see those two moving together, then I think it's probably a good sign um, for federal procurement that uh, they're going to have strong leadership in both places. I mean, I think if you do, then you can really have some necessary changes made to the system.
0: One of the challenges that the vendor base that serves the Defense Department is looking at is uh, cybersecurity requirements. We've talked in this program about CMMC a thousand times. If we've talked about it once, um, there is a new basic cyber assessment at the department. What do we know about that now, Angela?
1: Well, the Department of Defense finally realized that there's a lot of prime contractors and subcontractors out there that weren't following the requirements to actually perform a basic cyber assessment. And so they really are giving them some leeway for a period of time leading up to CMMC. At the end of the day, CMC doesn't affect that many contractors, but of the vast majority of contractors will receive controlled unclassified information and will have to have some level of cybersecurity Um, requirements in place. And so the Department of Defense put together this requirement for a basic assessment using the NIST standards, putting forward a methodology, coming up with a score, and requiring any prime or subcontractor to put that score into the DOD system. Doesn't matter what your score is, there's lots of negative scores out there, but they said, you know what, everybody, it's time to actually get started on this, figure out where you are, and then take steps to improve. Um, It's really been a a nice approach from the Department of Defense, recognizing the need to, you know, push the industry forward without making it uh, 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 detrimental or too hard for industry or punitive.
0: And is that where a lot of the companies, though, that are struggling with it are struggling with it because they're having a hard time buying the fact that the Pentagon is not going to use it against them, that it's not punitive? Or is there some other reason that companies are having a hard time with this?
1: Well, a lot of them realize that they were required to before and so they've had to come in and quickly do an assessment because the rules just came out in late November and get their score in or they will not be awarded contracts where um, there's a prime or subcontractor where the Department of Defense is going to provide controlled and classified information and so it literally was a hey. You're not going to get any new contracts. And everybody suddenly realized that and have to go back and perform this assessment and put their score in and then start working on their cybersecurity measures.
0: What should companies pay attention to in the coming weeks, months, et cetera, to make sure that they're on track?
1: Well, I I would certainly say keep an eye on what the Department of Defense does next. So is it gonna be a criteria for the award of a contract? Are you gonna have to have a particular score coming forward? You know, really push to get the first assessment done, figure out where you have gaps and move to fill those gaps. I think as we saw with Solar Wind, it is critically important to fill those gaps both within the government and outside the government with the contractors and everybody realizes that now.
0: Angela Stiles, thanks very much. It's great to have you back.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Up next, the future of the defense industrial base. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the danger for small businesses as defense budgets shrink. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Pentagon has a new program designed to give defense companies more access to classified information. The SAP Contractor Portfolio Program aims to increase productivity and cost efficiency. Deborah Lee James is the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force. Madam Secretary, welcome back. It's great to see you again. What do we know about this program? It's been a pilot for a period of time. Apparently, the pilot was successful. It's now an official uh, program at DOD that Ellen Lord has rolled out. What do we know about it, ma'am?
2: Well, first of all, Happy New Year. It's great to see you again, Francis. And this is a very interesting um, program, in my opinion. So we don't know a whole lot, but what we do know is that this is part, I would say, of a drive across the government, certainly a drive across DOD, to see whether or not we can declassify certain information, or if not fully declassify, at least open up the apertures. Because what we find is in the classified world, and in this case, we're talking about the most highly classified programs. In the classified world in general, programs tend to be expensive. There tends not to be a lot of competition because not that many people know about it. And also, um, it tends to be that it's hard to insert new technologies into the game because things are so uh, highly walled off, one contractor to another. So this is an effort to open up the aperture, uh, and it'll be interesting to see how it all unfolds.
0: How how will this information help the companies do what the department wants them to achieve? Air Force Magazine writes it this way, hoping more insight will make contractors more efficient and cost conscious. How could the information that this program will allow them to access to see more or see earlier or whatever be able to achieve those goals?
2: Well, certainly in theory, and I think for the most part in practice as well. Whenever you have greater transparency, whenever an industry partner has broader knowledge of the totality of a program, how the piece parts fit together, when they have insight into the future, the strategy, the go forward, all of these things ought to be able to allow them to gin up new proposals, bring other capabilities to the table that might be useful to the government. And over time, that should also drive down costs and allow them to optimize the efficiency of what needs to be a very highly um, uh, cleared workforce, which of course is at a premium here in Washington and across the uh, across the country.
0: We don't know the companies that are involved in this, Madam Secretary. This uh, this piece says the memo didn't say uh, memo from Ellen Lord's office didn't say how many or which companies are part of the program, but noted corporations must be on contract for at least 15 special access programs to participate understanding that you're not on the inside now, that you're an outside observer, but with experience on the inside, what's your sense of what that level of participation in special access programs means to the ability uh, for these companies to participate in this program?
2: Well, first of all, I think this is going to be very helpful for those companies who have, you know, broad experience with the special access program. Of course, if you have 15 different contracts, uh, with SAPS at the moment, that means you're highly experienced and you, in the minds of the government, you are a trusted partner. You've done well with those programs, you've protected the classified information, et cetera. So if you're in the club, I think you're in like Flynn, as they as they sometimes say. If you're not in that club, if I were an industry partner not in that club, I would be wonder, wondering, well, gee, what's, what's magic about 15? And why isn't it 20? And how about I have 12, how come 12 isn't good enough? I would have all of these extra uh, questions that, that I would be asking. So again, since we have so little information, and most importantly, we don't have metrics to be able to judge whether or not two or three years from now, we do get more technology insertions or we do drive down costs, whether the goals of the program are met. We'll, we will, as members of the public, we won't know this unless DOD uh, shares that information ultimately with us. And
0: it's it when you draw that distinction, why is 15 the right number, why not 12, why not 20, et cetera, it, it makes me think of a... The right word is club that you use, Madam Secretary, because I guess if you're in, you know why you're in, and if you're not in, if you don't know why you're not in, that indicates that you're not going to make it anytime soon, it sounds like.
2: Well, it sounds like it was a judgment call, mm-hmm. and of course... Government, industry, all walks of life are filled with judgment calls. They had to to draw the line at some point, and they made the decision that um, 15 would be the line. My guess is because it is a drive to to increase efficiency, pull down the costs, bring more technology insertion to the table, um, that Congress—and by the way, there are only a handful in Congress, members and staff— who are allowed to oversee and, and to have knowledge of these programs, because again, these are highly classified programs. My, my sense is they'll probably give this some runway, and, but they will be asking about some of the things we've talked about here, the metrics. How are we gonna demonstrate that this works? What's the impact to small business, for example? How many small businesses are allowed in? Is small business being shut out? These are key questions that you and I can't answer, but I guarantee you that Congress will be, will be asking
0: what will you watch moving forward madam secretary what are the markers here that uh, will make a difference to the way this evolves
2: well in general over the next several weeks i'll be watching across the the federal government and especially at the department of defense what other initiatives roll out because we are clearly in the final weeks of an administration and when you know my administration included all administrations there's a race to the finish line to try to push over the finish line programs that are near completion or that you want to have as part of a legacy, good ideas that you want to leave for the future. So I would expect we'll see more things rolling out over the next several weeks. Specifically to this program, as I said, I think it's going to take um, several years, and it will largely depend on what DOD decides to reveal to the public. Will they eventually reveal the names of the companies? I mean, there's pros and cons to that. Um, will Congress ask these questions and issue complaints um, that it should be opened up wider, for example? these are all, And what will the metrics be to measure success? So these are the things I would be watching for the long term specific to this program.
0: Madam Secretary, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back.
2: Thank you, Francis.
0: Up next, another round of problems for the F-35 program. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the prognosis for progress in the new year. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Full rate production of the F-35 is on indefinite hold tonight. The Defense Department says it's due to, quote, technical challenges and the impact of COVID-19. It's not the first time the $398 billion program has been delayed. Tony Capaccio's defense reporter at Bloomberg News. Tony, thanks very much for coming on. What's Thank your, you. What do we know about what is causing these delays? COVID is obviously changing the timeline on everything all across the department and all across the federal government how much of this is due to problems inside the program and how much of this is due to COVID?
3: I think the COVID issue is the latest, but not the, the major impact here. This simulation project was supposed to be ready for operation three years ago, well before COVID. It's had a series of contractual and developmental controversies and difficulties because it's, it's been likened to me as the Manhattan Project of simulations this is supposed to test the airplane in a 360-degree simulator against Soviet, Russian, Chinese, Syrian integrated air defenses, North Korean, Iranian air, integrated air defenses, things you can't do in open air testing. This is going to be the capstone exercise of this program before the Pentagon makes its crucial full-rate production decision. That decision, by the way, under the original schedule was supposed to have happened in April of 2012. So here we are today. Right now, the program's in a holding pattern while the simulation verification and developmental issues are worked out. And it has been complicated by COVID. But this is not one you can lay on that hor- that horrible pandemic.
0: You write in uh, your most recent piece on this, you've been following this issue for years, obviously. But uh, mm-hmm. in your most recent piece, you write that Jessica Maxwell, spokesperson for Ellen Lord. Uh, said uh, that a new date would be based on independent technical review. Who conducts that? Do we know who will conduct that and decide it's now okay to proceed?
3: I think it's going to be – they haven't given me a clear answer on that. The Joint Program Office of the F-35 tells me they're going to be conducting it and they will have their recommendations by February 28th, we hope. That means two mo- a month and a half into the Biden administration, they're going to finally know – What the next next milestones are of this crucial, the world's biggest weapons program. And uh, it's leaving them a can of worms, shall we say. Do we
0: know anything about what the technical challenges per se are? Some of the ones that you've told me about before have involved uh, the equipment that the pilots use inside the cockpit. Mm -hmm. There have been a, a software problem that's been dogging this program for years. They've now changed out the software essentially in the last six months or so. Do we know what specifically these technical challenges are this time?
3: Well, the technical challenge dealing with this so-called joint simulation environment are basically integrating all these different radar signals emanating from an an S-300 or an S-400 integrated air defense system into this high-tech environment. They have to verify the modeling. They have to uh, integrate the modeling with the cockpit, and then it's going to be simulating flights with other aircraft, enemy aircraft, allied aircraft, Navy aircraft. It's a minuet, a, uh, it's a Manhattan project of simulations, probably a good way to put it. And like everything else with this $398 billion program, the difficulty was underestimated. Plus there was a contractual issue with Lockheed on intellectual property for use in the simulations environment that was resolved last year, but that added to the delay also. Hopefully, this thing will be done by the uh, end of this, or by October, November of this year, and a full reproduction decision can proceed.
0: One of the things that you and I talked about the very first time we talked about this program, I think it was 10 years ago now, was uh-huh. the problem of concurrency. You just laid out some, some of the issues that you just laid out are core. They're essential to what the selling points of this program were from the very beginning. But you also report more than 600 of the potential 3,200 aircraft have already been delivered. That uh-huh. means we're already, what, a, a, a fifth or quarter of the way into the timeline of, of the delivery timeline of this program. Does this mean that we need to go back to these 600 aircraft that are already out there and fix them in addition to the development ch- uh, changes that happen moving forward?
3: Yeah, right. So the newest statistic I have is Lockheed is either delivered or is under contract to produce. 970 of a potential 3,200 airplane program, including U.S. and international. So that's like a third of the programs already been committed. So to your question on retrofit, a number of the earlier models are going to have to be retrofitted for soft, to fix software defects and other issues that have been discovered in more recent testing. Some of the later model airplanes are coming off the line, and they're in pretty good shape but we're talking billions of dollars of costs to retrofit, they call them concurrency retrofit costs. DOD has done reports on this annually for the last five or six years, but we're talking billions of dollars to retrofit because of the concurrent nature of the program. Everybody went in with their eyes open, but their eyes were blinded by the light of the F-35's promise, which has been less than stellar over the 20 years that Lockheed won the contract coming up in October of this year.
0: All right. To that series of reports you write in this piece, Robert Beeler, the Defense Department's operational testing director, says it is in his latest annual report set for release in January. Roughly one month of combat testing is now expected to occur in mid to late 2021. You talked a moment ago about a couple of months into the Biden administration for one element of this. Sounds like another element of this isn't happening until late this year.
3: Uh not only, late this year, Beeler's report is going to be out in the next week or two. I was tipped off to that conclusion. Yeah, so we're talking later this year after the 2022 budget has been chewed over by Congress. Will we have a clear path forward for this massive program? I'll be looking for whether the Biden administration cuts the quantities planned in the current five-year defense plan. You, your viewers know what the fit of is. 79 plans were requested for 21. 84 are requested for 80 uh, for 22, and then it goes up to 94 in 2023 and beyond. I'll be looking for whether those quantities are cut, and the and the budget likely coming out in March. That'll be one telling indicator of the confidence the Biden administration has in the program.
0: Tony, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back.
3: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. And you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7. To stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
3: Thanks for listening. Our daily
0: program is produced by Cherise Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters
3: was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn
0: of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.